0: Welcome to the Leaders of Interest Podcast with your host, Jonathan, JJ, Gerald. This is the podcast for relevant leaders, and now your host, JJ. Mr. Matt Tenney, how are you today?
1: Well, I'm fantastic. How are you, JJ?
0: You know what? I'm perfect today. I can't complain because I get to talk to a guy like you.
1: Why, thank you.
0: (laughs) Hey, listen, would you do me a favor? I always like for a guest to tell us a little bit about themselves.
1: Well, uh, my background is kind of as a serial social entrepreneur. I've co-founded and led a couple of small nonprofit organizations. I'm looking to start the next project that I'd like to do here in, in the coming months in Nashville, Tennessee, when I move there this summer. As I learned more about, you know, leadership, what works and what doesn't, I became really fascinated with a specific area of leadership. And what, on that fascination was just a shift that I noticed in my personal life, some rather extreme circumstances that I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. And so, you know, it's this concept of looking at how we can be a servant as a leader. So it's being, being more focused on instead of what can we get out of our people, what can we do to serve them, to look at what we can do to contribute to their happiness both in the workplace and outside of the workplace. And how when we make that shift, although the return on investment isn't immediate, um, it's more of a long-term investment. If you look at the most successful organizations over the long term, this is something that they do very well. And so this kind of really inspired me to think, well, wow, maybe I could make even a bigger impact on our world. If we could have the vast majority of organizations, leaders that look at leadership that way, not only would they have better long-term results in terms of profitability, revenue, all the things that investors would care about. But it would make our world a better place. People would go home fulfilled. Probably most of us that are familiar with HR or leadership, you know, we're aware of these statistics that are pretty scary. Roughly 70% of the people out there don't like their jobs. They're either disengaged or actively disengaged where they hate their jobs and are toxic to the workplace. And then we also know that the vast majority of people, depending on which study you read, it's somewhere between 65 and 85% of people quit their job because of their immediate supervisor. They have supervisors that are just sucking the life out of them. What inspired me was this idea, what if we shifted that and what if you could go to work every day with a smile on your face because you're making the lives of your people better and you go home at night with a smile on your face because you had a wonderful day full of positive connections that not only help your organization run better but are fulfilling both for you and the people that you're leading on your team. So this idea of what a win-win this is. And so I thought, well, I think I would like to make this shift occur on a broader scale and started looking at ways that I could do that. I initially wanted to do just training, doing long-term workshops, like two, three days or long-term consulting projects and realized that it takes quite a while to get started with that if you don't have a vast connection in the business or a vast network in the business world, which I didn't. So instead, I decided to focus on Sharing my story, which is somewhat unique, is a way to inspire people to make this shift by doing keynote speeches at different conferences or for organizations that bring in speakers for their conferences. So that's what I'm doing
0: now. That's awesome. (laughs) Thanks. No, and and we're going to get into your book and your story because I think it's completely relevant, and I I think it's an awesome story, and I want our listeners to hear it. Now, before we do, I always like to ask some icebreaker questions. Are you ready for those? Sure. Sure. All right, here we go. What is your favorite song to sing in the shower? Don't worry, be happy. (laughs) Name a routine you have that others may think is weird.
1: I tend to eat essentially the same things almost every day. So (laughs) a lot of people think I'm crazy and that they would go nuts if they didn't have more of a variety. But I tend to focus on what I need to be healthy, get a mix of fruits and vegetables and protein. And that's pretty much all I care about. (laughs) So Great. I'm pretty, pretty boring either.
0: <laughs> One more. I know that you do a lot of traveling with your keynotes and things. Name a pet peeve you have while traveling.
1: I enjoy traveling so much. It's really hard to think of a pet peeve. <laughs> I would guess the biggest pet peeve is incompetence of the airlines. The, when, they, when my flights are delayed due to incompetence, I find that rather annoying on multiple levels. One, because my clients expect me to be where I'm supposed to be on time. So I generally plan to be there way early just to leave a buffer for that. But the other side of it, it tells me that leadership is not functioning well in that organization. It kind of frustrates me that employees aren't empowered to do the things that would make their airline run better.
0: Good. The reason why I asked you that question is because this just week I was traveling. I have a pet peeve of those people. You know when you have to take your shoes off and your belt off and you get up to the line? I have a pet peeve of those people that wait until they get up there. You know, let's get your belt off, get your shoes off, and be ready when they call you to go <laughs> through the little scanner. <laughs> anyway, all right, the next question is a staple question we ask every single guest, and that is for you to contrast your best boss and your worst boss.
1: Well, the worst boss was cl- clearly one that had very poor levels of communication, which, result, which resulted in very low levels of trust and quite a level of failure in terms of empowering the people she's leading. And I guess contrasting that to best boss is obviously the opposite of that, but also just taking it a step further and really doing a great job at focusing on what's going right and not that she's avoiding bad things that need to be corrected. Not She's not avoiding difficult conversations. But, you know, focusing on what's going right, focusing on acknowledging what's going right, and also doing a great job of just setting large, more strategic goals and allowing the people that need to accomplish those goals to have, some, have a high level of freedom in how they go about doing it. So I think when, when that happens, people feel very empowered. They take ownership of what's happening. I know that I enjoy that. I know when someone just says, here's what I need it done, you know, here's what I need to get done. You figure it out.
0: (laughs) Hey, before we get into your book, Served to be Great, I wanted to know what is Matt's definition of a servant leader? That's a good question.
1: It's very deep, so there's a lot of levels to it. I think to put it up, to put it very succinctly, it's just somebody that looked at leadership, instead of looking at it as an opportunity to have more personal power, more authority, more prestige. It's somebody that looks at leadership as an opportunity to be of greater service to others, whether that's, it's, and it's both, greater service to society. Like if I have some great cause that I want to bring to the world, if I do it by myself, my impact is going to be pretty limited, right? Whereas if I get other people involved and I become a leader of a team of people that are doing this, whether it's a team of 10 or a team of a thousand, the impact is going to be much greater. So I realize that if I take on a leadership role, I can be of greater service to society, but then also looking at the role of leader as not to extract value from people, but to add value to people. So if I have people on my team to look at it as my job is almost like a mother hen. My job is to go around and make sure that not only that people are being held accountable to the expectations that we set, which is kind of like basic management. We need to set clear expectations and hold people accountable and to excellence, but also to really care about people. What can I do to contribute to their happiness, both at home and in the workplace and actively look for ways that I can empower people and make their work more fulfilling and help them to be more engaged. So I think that's it. It's just a shift in motivation for why do we want to be a leader and then how do we actually lead others?
0: Great. I wanted to kind of get into your book. And really the first question I had was why did you write it? How did you come up with it? And why did you title it Serve to be Great?
1: Well, the title served to be great. I think it's just a very simple way of explaining why I do what I do.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And maybe to give people the way that they can understand, because there's a lot of people that I know that want to do this. And it can be very difficult when we have pressures from above. But so it's just a very succinct way of saying if you want to be truly great in life, especially as a leader of a team or of an organization, true greatness is a result of focusing on serving others. You know, the more that our motivation comes from the desire and ability to effectively serve others, the greater the outcome is going to be, especially over the long term. So it was just a very succinct way of capturing that. And yeah. then, of course, the subtitle it explains kind of why I wrote it. <laughs> you know, so it's leadership lessons from prison, a monastery, and a boardroom. So it's this journey that kind of led to the realization that a, life, a truly great life is one that's devoted to serving others and, and some amazing tools that we can use to actually make that shift and be more effective at serving others.
0: Matt, would you take us through that, the prison, the monastery, and then the boardroom?
1: Sure. I was serving as a marine officer back in the late '90s, early 2000s, and in, I was on deployment in 2000, and this opportunity essentially fell in my lap that would allow me to trick the U.S. government into delivering a pretty large sum of money wherever I wanted them to deliver it. And there's a little bit of a backstory there. You know, I had been really focused on this idea that financial freedom was the definition of success, and I had also had this tendency of always looking for the easy way out. of think, uh, what's a quick fix? You know, what's the path of least resistance? So when this opportunity essentially fell in my lap. Of course, as a Marine officer, integrity is our number one core values. Immediately think, oh yeah, I'm going to try to do this. But over a period of about four or five months, I did a lot of rationalizing and I justified why it wouldn't be such a terrible thing to at least figure out if I could arrange this delivery. And so in January of 2001, I actually did that. I forged a couple of documents and sent them off to the Federal Reserve Bank of Los Angeles. I made phone calls and I had arranged the delivery of almost $3 million in about, you know, 15 minutes of work. And once I had the delivery arranged, you know, reality just hit me in the face and I realized there's no way I could try to take this money. I didn't want to be a criminal. I didn't have a plan for picking it up. I abandoned the whole thing, but it turned out i would already broken the law. As soon as I forged those documents and sent them to the Federal Reserve Bank, I was guilty of a a fraud against the government. And so I was I was arrested and I ended up spending five and a half years confined to military prisons. Wow. You anyway, know, at first, of course, this is the absolute worst thing that ever <laughs> happened to me. And I was, there was a point where I was had, you know, pretty serious suicidal thoughts. It was terrible. But after about five, six months, somewhere in there, I, I started adjusting and I started to actually consciously look for what I could do to make the most out of that opportunity. And, some of the deeper questions in life started coming up. Well, what is this life all about? Why are we here? Is it possible to be happy in this place as I could be anyplace else? And very fortunately for me, I started learning about this practice called mindfulness trainings which is now being employed by many leading organizations, including like Apple, Google, General Mills, because it's very, very powerful for leadership development. What interested me in the practice was just this idea that it could help me to be kind of free from my comparative thinking and more present with what I was doing and while I was confined, and that it could actually help me to be happy, a place where there are no possessions, there is no girlfriend, there is no fun. And lo and behold, after about six months of practice, I really, when I when something makes sense to me, I really go at it 100%. And within a few months, I was practicing just about every moment of the day. And after about six months, I realized, holy macaroni and cheese. I'm, I'm happier right here in the brig with nothing than I'd ever been in my entire life. And so that kind of inspired me to go deeper with the practice. And the people that I was learning from principally were monastic. They What they had taught me so far worked like a wonder. And I was happy in a place that most people would consider hell on earth. So I said, well, I'm going to go all the way. I kind of transformed the prison into a monastery. And I spent the last three years of my time there living and training just as a monk would. And what kind of the big shift there was just a shift in motivation for my 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 own happiness to devoting myself to the service of others and helping them to be happy. And that totally transformed the experience of being confined. You know, I woke up excited every day because my life was just filled with deep meaning and purpose in a place where there isn't much inherent deep meaning and purpose. And so, I mean, I actually woke up an hour early. We had to get up at 5. I would wake up at 4 o'clock to do these extra training of the mind that helped me to be of greater service to the people around me. In fact, I was so enamored by this, this ideal of the monastic life that after spending five and a half years confined to military prison, I actually went to go live in a real monastery. And I almost ordained to become a monk for the rest of my life. But I kind of realized that for me that was just like taking another shortcut, taking the easy way out. You know, I'd already lived like that. And I figured if I wanted to grow more and be better able to serve others than I needed to go out and do what everybody else has to do and you know get a job and deal with uh, with people like that don't take their shoes off until the last moment and the uh, security <laughs> yeah. lines, things like that. <laughs> so that's kind of mm-hmm. the path I follow, is just can I continue to, to train this diligently almost as a monastic and follow this ideal of the monastic life, which is to live very simply and be one hundred percent devoted to the service of others, but do it in the real in the quote unquote real
0: world. And so that's what I did. You know, man how, how do you think that mindfulness increases your ability to lead?
1: Oh, it's numerous ways. One is just our capacity to be resilient in stressful situations. So if we want to look at the most gross level of of leadership, even if we think of some amazing combat leader, it's a pretty easy decision, right? If you had to choose between somebody as a leader, between somebody who gets frazzled and stressed out over even the most minutiae or the mi- most minute details, versus somebody that can have bombs going off around them and be calm and collected and lead effectively in that way, it's a no-brainer, right? I mean, what do you want to follow a basket case? And for one, mindfulness training is extremely effective at increasing our resilience to stressful situations, which is why the military is actually starting to train their leaders in mindfulness training for that very reason. Another very kind of large-scale idea is that in addition to my story of finding happiness in a place pretty hard to be happy, there's a large body of brain scan research showing that mindfulness training actually increases our baseline level of happiness. So a happier person is going to be much more effective at encouraging people to want to be around them more positive a better leader in many ways but to me the most important aspect is that mindfulness training helps us to kind of gradually reduce our self-centeredness And I think all of us want, deep down, we aspire to be somebody who's more focused on how we can help others, how we can serve the people around us. But we get very caught in short-term thinking, short-term goals, hitting the numbers. We feel stress put on us by shareholders or by our leaders or even sometimes by our own team members to hit those short-term goals. And when we get wrapped up in that, then we tend to put relationships second, tend to put serving the people around us second. And so mindfulness training, because of its ability to help us be more resilient, in stressful situations in that way helps us to be more effective at not getting caught in that and being more focused on, okay, well, what can I do to cultivate pos- those positive relationships that are going to drive the long-term success, not just hitting a short-term number. And then also kind of gradually making an internal shift where we become less concerned about putting ourselves first, and we start to see our needs and the needs of the people around us as equal. And this is something yeah. that, again, not just anecdotal evidence for this, there's a tremendous body of research showing that mindfulness training actually makes physical changes to the structure of the brain that allows people to become more kind, more compassionate, more empathetic, and develop a greater spirit of service.
0: You know, so your book has a lot of good case studies, and I wondered if there's a couple, maybe two or three of those case studies that you really thought drove home being a servant leader.
1: Oh, yeah, there's, there's numerous. Yeah, so the, the book is laid out. The first two chapters are just kind of my story of going into a little bit more detail of how I went from being mostly selfish to being more focused on serving. And then, as you pointed out, part two is four chapters in the middle. It's kind of the business case. Well, why should we bother? If our goal is long-term growth and profitability, how does servant leadership affect that? And so we touch on how it affects it in four different key elements of business, including how we attract and retain top talent and make sure people are engaged, how we deliver customer service, whether or not we're innovative, and our efforts for marketing. The third part of the book is It has case studies as well, but it's more focused on how do we make the shift? What are things that we can do both inwardly and using external systems to make it so that we make this shift to being more focused on what we can do to serve the people on our team? And I think my favorite case study, I highlight some that are a little bit more well Southwest, very many people are familiar with how successful Southwest has been. So I kind of use that just as a very general approach to how servant leadership is effective. But we get really down into the nitty gritty. And my favorite one to talk about is this company called NextJump. Which probably very few people, if any, in the southeast have heard of. You know, they're based in New York City. They have an office in San Francisco and an office, and I think, one in London as well. They're uh, an e-commerce company, and they have the perks like Google and SAS and some of these other great companies. But I think you can make a pretty good case that it's not the perks that make a culture. You know, there's a lot of people that company that creates a lot of great perks, but they don't they don't have people that stay. That can be very superficial. If somebody reads in a book, you have a keg every Friday. It's a great culture. You do this. You do that. And in some ways it can help. It helps people get people in the door, but it might not retain them. And so next jump, yes, they, they have the perks. You know, they have the free gym for their employees. They have free healthy food that employees can eat whenever they want. They, they even do something that's pretty extreme. They actually they do their employees laundry for them. Employees actually bring their laundry into work on a Friday, and it's taken to be washed, dried, and folded over the weekend, put in a clean bag, and they pick it up on Monday. And this came out of, they didn't just want to create this, this came out of listening to what their people said they really needed. A few years ago, people said, Well, you know what would be really nice is if we didn't have to spend half of every other weekend in a New York City laundromat. And leadership looked into it and said, Obviously, if our people are happier on the weekends, they're going to be more productive at work. Let's see if this is feasible. You know, and it it turned out that. Doing dry cleaning would be prohibitively expensive, and washing and drying is not cheap, but they figured it would be a good investment. So now, you know, the employees have their laundry done for them. They bring the bag that they use, has the next jump logo on it, and below that it reads, my company gets my laundry, I get my weekends back. But to me, that's just a minor thing. What is really being developed there is they're creating a whole culture of people who are devoted to serving and caring for the people around them. To give you an idea, and here's one of the, I think, key chapters of the book, is that these things don't happen if we don't measure them. There's an old business axiom that I'm sure we're all familiar with. If it doesn't get measured, it doesn't get done, right? Yep. Well, we do a very good job of measuring many aspects of our organization, but I think where a lot of organizations fail is they don't measure what really, really matters. Like, how are people treating each other? How much do people trust each other? How well do they trust their leaders? How well does the leader listen to people? How well does the leader empower people? How well does the leader work to serve the people on his or her team? If we start measuring these things, then people realize, well, this is important. I should... Cultivate disability or I'm not going to get promoted. I'm not going to be a leader. So to me, the most dramatic thing that NextJump does is they actually have an award called the Avenger Award and it's a $30,000 package. It includes a third week of paid vacation and this award does not go to the top revenue generator, doesn't go to the top salesperson, doesn't go to the top computer programmer. The award goes to the number one peer voted, most selfless, helpful person in the company. It goes to the best servant leader. So they're creating this metric that's acknowledged and rewarded in a very extreme way. And I'm not saying very few people can afford to give away a $30,000 prize. We don't need to do that. It could start off with just public recognition if that's what the person likes, some other form of recognition if that's what they prefer. But imagine every employee in that company knows what is most valued by leadership. It's looking at how you can be a better team player, work together better as a team, and serve the people around you. So they are creating this culture of servant leaders, and the business results of this have been incredible. So in 2012, they had a hire rate of 0.2%. They had almost 18,000 applications to hire 35 new people. So to put that in perspective, the, higher, the admission rate to Harvard University in 2012 was
0: 6%. So wow. it was
1: 30 times easier to get into Harvard than it was to get a job at Next Jump that year. Their retention is unbelievable. In the tech space, the industry average for, for turnover is roughly around 20%, 25%. The turnover at NextJump is less than 1%. And this is despite the fact that their people routinely get calls from other companies in the tech space offering them two to three times what they make in the, at NextJump. Most of the time, the employees don't even re- return the phone calls. They're completely content where they are. And wow. for anybody in the HR field, we know the cost for turning over one mid-level employee on average is about a year's salary. So imagine if you could reduce turnover from 20% to 1%. I mean, we're talking, if you're a company with a couple hundred employees, we're talking a reduction in cost on the order of millions of dollars. The culture that they're creating not only is creating great business outcomes, creating awesome human beings that are making our world a better place. Uh, My hope is my kind of mission and why I do what I do is very similar to Next Jump, which is if we can make this the norm where businesses and other organizations realize the best way that we're going to achieve long-term success is to focus on serving and caring for for our people then it would become the norm and if that became the norm that would totally change our society it would become the standard model for success instead of growing up thinking i need to do this and do that to make a million dollars the standard model would be well yeah i need to be good at what i do i need to pursue excellence but i need to also focus on how i can apply that excellence to be a greater service to the people around me and if that's the standard model for success our world's a much better place to live in
0: I certainly agree with you on that. Tell me, as you were doing your research, is there anything that surprised you?
1: There was one study that surprised me. There's a chapter I talk about how servant leadership improves customer service. And I think intuitively we can make that connection pretty easily. But I try to quantify it, make it very concrete. And I just set up the whole thing by showing how important customer service is in a very quantifiable way. And I think that surprised me because I expected this is a pretty simple idea, right? If we want to have happy, loyal customers to drive revenues over the long term, what do we need to have? Happy, loyal employees. And we understand that we need to have great customer service that's driven by happy employees if we want to have those long-term, happy, loyal customers. This one study that I read just blew my mind in terms of how to quantify that. And what it was, and I'm not going to remember the exact numbers right now, so I'll just kind of <laughs> ballpark it. But the basic idea was that they, it was some type of company that you wouldn't think of normally as being really focused on customer service, some type of manufacturing company. And they cost them about $50,000 to do this experiment. But they took a control group, so they split their sales team in half. And one half of the sales team just did what they normally did. The other half of the sales team made an extra effort to call customers especially decision-makers, and do nothing but just ask them about them, deepen the relationship, ask you know how things are going with them. They offered no discounts. They did nothing to, I guess, try to pitch some upgrade or sale, nothing. All they did was they spent six months just deepening relationships, and the results were amazing. Now, this was during the, the heavy part of the recession, so the, the control group did what no, things is normal. They Actually, their sales decreased by 14%. But again, I think that was just because of the recession. But the group that did, that did the focus on deepening relationships, their sales increased by, I think it was 22% or something like that. It was ridiculous. And they, wow. the increase in revenue was on the order of millions of dollars. I want to say it was $2.5 million that they made above and beyond what the, the control group did. So if you look at that, you a know, $50,000 investment that returns $2 million, that's a pretty good ROI. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> definitely. Well, I mean, it makes, makes perfect sense was. because we stick with the brands, or we buy from the people we know and trust. And the only way that you build the trust is that certainly that relationship. Would you agree?
1: Definitely. And that's what I think this all comes down to is that business comes down to over the long term. It comes down to relationships. And if your people, if the people on your team are going to develop the relationships without the external customer, then we need to focus as leaders on our customers, which are the people on our team. And if our relationships are strong with the people on our team, that translates into external relationships that are strong. Not just customers, too, but that can include vendors. You know, really, instead of looking at vendors as, how can we get the best price out of them and how can we extract the greatest value out of them to think, well, how can we develop a long term relationship with vendors so that we're looking at this as a team? And then all of a sudden you have a vendor that becomes a partner and actually might add value to your organization by helping you improve how you distribute your products or services or offer connections to you you never would have had had you treated them as though they were a redheaded stepchild and trying to suck the life out of them.
0: Tell me, what would your kind of your Lippman's test while you're doing your research tell us about a company you threw out of the mix that you didn't care to showcase and maybe why?
1: Yes. Oh, well, I, I still mentioned Jack Welch a little bit, but I initially learned a little bit about GE and, and I was very familiar with some of the more ruthless things that Jack Welch did as a leader. They had this policy for God knows how long where, you know, essentially if you finished in the bottom 20% every year, you were let like, go. Oh, you know and that's it's kind of just created a tremendous amount of fear and, and crushing of but people didn't believe it because they had double digit growth year after year after year and as I looked more into it you know I realized well part of that is explained by the, the just the economic conditions during that time everybody was growing there was there was no recession during that time but and this is not to say that uh, that Jack Walsh doesn't have good leadership qualities but you know, I had initially wanted to expand a little bit more on GE because one of the things that they did correctly was they built an incredible learning organization. They in- invested a tremendous amount in training their people. So although I, I didn't cut them entirely out, I eliminated quite a bit and I just focused this one idea that although some of the things that Jack Welch and his senior leaders did were not very servant leader oriented. One of the things they did right, which can really set the tone for a culture, is investing both time and money in training. That's a pretty powerful way to send a message that you care about your people, especially if you don't have much of a budget and you say, well, I, as a senior leader, I'm going to take two hours of my time to train my people each week on something that may not even be professionally oriented. It might just help them in their personal life really sends a message that you care. And so I kind of use that as a, a point of how powerful that can be, because even though they did all these things uh, or, or numerous things at GE that I, I don't think were were very effective uh, over the long term, and you could kind of see that that was the case, you know, after Welch left um, and the economy changed, you know, GE had a really tough time for, for years. Uh, and that's kind of a testament to there weren't leaders that were developed that, you know, could. Could face those tough times, um, but despite the things that they did that weren't very effective, they were able to to really uh, attract and and retain some highly talented people because they wanted to be part of this organization. Where if you go work for a GE, it's like you're getting a a master's degree essentially, while, and getting paid for it.
0: So, yeah. So I I wonder if. Yeah, no, that's perfect. That's perfect. I, um. And really what I was trying to do is really build a foundation for someone to go buy your book, and I think you absolutely did that. So give me give me an idea of some actionable practices that a leader can put into place right now that are in your book.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, so as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I think there's – what I focus on in the book is there's countless tactics that we can employ, obviously. I mean – there is just there's so many tactical things that we can do to to create this this team culture where people really understand and, and know that that we care about them and that our our focus is serving them. But again, you know, if they're just tactics that we read in a book, I, I don't think it's sustainable. And there's plenty of I, I, there's plenty of reason to believe that that's true. And there's plenty of evidence and cultures. That where that happens, where they have all these perks, but their their people are leaving left and right. So I think where I focus is on what can we do to make an inner shift to where we get less caught up in the day to day urgent things and the quarterly numbers, and we're more focused on the long term investment and long term success, which is dependent on relationships, you know, and and how we can become somebody who's just. Always looking for ways that we can be of greater service to the people around us, both in our personal lives and our work lives. And so there's, to me, there's two ways to do that. One, you know, there's, there's developing new mental habits and training the mind, uh, which we go into. But then there's also, you know, kind of systematic things that we can do where if you change the banks of a river, the water changes with it, right? Kind of, there's some systems that we can put into place that I think help us to make this shift. So one of them, which I I touched on earlier, is just measuring the right things. You know, instead of just focusing on measuring short-term numbers, and, and even some of the things that are measured standard, like customer service ratings and employee satisfaction ratings, I don't think those give us as much as if we measure a leader's propensity to serve, so above himself, things like that. And if we measure those things, I mentioned a company has a case study in there, it's Hershen Family Entertainment. They run amusement parks all over the country, and the CEO is Joel Mandu, who's written a great book called Love Works. They do a tremendous job at this. In fact, you can't be promoted to senior leadership unless you excel at both the managerial task, hitting the numbers and doing the quantifiable things, but you also have to excel at qualitative aspects. As you could guess from the book, Love Work, what they're measuring is how well does a leader love the people around him or her. Their financial success, has been tremendous. And they, their leadership ties it almost exclusively to the fact that they're creating this culture where the leaders love each other and love their employees. And that, in turn, creates an amazing guest experience and customers that want to come back again and again and again. You know, how are you evaluating whether a leader is effective or not? If we're not measuring those intangible things of how well does a leader truly care about the people on his or her team, then I think we're missing the boat. So, And then a, a, maybe a simple idea for – or two simple ideas for making the inner shift in terms of daily practices that we can do. One is, of course, mindfulness training, and, and that would take a, quite a while to explain the, the basics of that in a way that people could apply, but there's plenty of great books. I mean, you can Google mindfulness training, and you'll probably, first thing will come up is the program at Google that they've been doing. And there's an excellent book on mindfulness for leadership and improving performance at work called Search Inside Yourself, written by Shade Ming Tan, who is his official job pedal at Google, is jolly good fellow. But also, we can make, in addition to mindfulness training, which is very simple to get started, uh, it's essentially just attention training. You know, we're training ourselves to be uh, more present, less caught up in our thinking. And so that increases our self-awareness. It increases our clarity about how our internal processes work, which are, of course make us more effective as a leader. But also we can just do simple things to make new mental habits, like um, asking certain questions every day. And I think a great one is before we check email and before we get into the urgent things of the day is to do what really matters. The question, how can I better serve the people on my team or the people around me? It takes five to 10 minutes to just contemplate that are there ways that I could do more to really care for the people on my team and and make better connections with them?
0: Wow, good question. Give us one more.
1: My personal favorite is, you know, so I kind of every day I have this very simple goal or general goal, which is I want every interaction I have with everybody to contribute to their happiness in some way, to lift them up just a little bit, even if it's just offering them a smile. So a great question that I use, until this has become a habit for me, is just as I approach any interaction with anyone, I'm thinking, how can I help this person? Or very similar ideas, what can I do to contribute to his or her happiness? And it's not that we have to find an answer right away. It's just if we come at it an interaction with that mindset, people feel it, and then we listen more, and we ask better questions, and then we elicit ways that we can help them, and that changes everything. That simple dynamic of instead of coming at it as what do I need from this person, what am I going to get out of them, what do I need them to do, what can I do to help them?
0: That's huge. Just like that, have you heard E plus R equals O?
1: If I have, I've forgotten.
0: Okay. I well, really, it, just what I try to live by when I deal with scenarios throughout the day, as you know, all leaders are hit with 100 different scenarios, and it's really the event plus the response equals the outcome. And it's mm. just how you focus or how you come into a situation is going to determine how the outcome. Clearly, yes. Uh, yeah. So, hey, I had a, a personal question for you, and that is, what's your best advice for someone who goes through an adversity in life?
1: Well, I think this comes to one of the key elements of mindfulness training. So if you or a listener there uh, for your show is looking, wants to go and look at mindfulness training, you're going to find that there's hundreds of techniques, right? There's this practice or that practice, and they all have value. But I think what... Underscores the very foundation of mindfulness training is an attitude that underlies the practice. And if we approach it with this attitude, it eventually becomes wisdom in our natural response to life. And that attitude is a non judgmental curiosity about what this current experience is like. So, what happens is when we have that attitude, our normal response or reaction to unpleasant situations is we want to get rid of it, right? We want to solve it. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that eventually, especially if it's something that's causing harm to us or somebody else. But what I'm, what I am suggesting is that if we're not in any immediate danger, no one else is in any immediate danger, we have some very, some calamity, some serious adversity, is to first look at what is it like in this moment? How is the body reacting to this? And there's probably frustration or anger or fear. And what happens is if we investigate that, if we just maintain this awareness of, well, what is fear like in the body, anxiety like in the body? What is frustration like in the body? How does it manifest? We create this space, whereas instead of being like, sucked into an emotion or a negative thought pattern, we see it objectively as though it's just this natural process. There's no reason it shouldn't happen. If something bad happens, there's no reason why an, an emotion like fear or frustration shouldn't arise. And so we take it, if we had this non-judgmental curiosity of just exploring it as though we're a scientist, you know, like, huh, what is this like? then what happens is we create space around that negative thought pattern or the emotion. And if there's space, then we can do what you were just alluding to a moment ago. We can respond in a way that we want to respond instead of just reacting based on our conditioning. And if we have that space, then what for me has been very, very powerful, and this is coming back to another question that I, I think is very, very powerful, as a filter for our decisions to ask, how will this help me to serve others? So when we're considering a course of action, just run it through that filter. How is this going to help me to serve the people on my team or my family or the people around me? But I found that that's also really, really helpful in adversity. If we first recognize the emotion that's present non-judgmentally, explore it a little bit, investigate it, then we're free from it. We're not caught in it, and it tends to pass more quickly. And then we can ask this question, well, how is this situation going to help me to be of service to others? And what I noticed in my life, as I've asked that question, it changes everything. Because first you start saying, well, what am I learning from this adversity? And then you start saying, well, how can I apply what I'm learning to help somebody else? And then it makes it so that if you practice that, if that becomes routine, even with small little adversities, like having an itch in the middle of your back that you can't reach, (laughs) you know, if you just, you practice with that. Then it starts to become, when the big things happen, it just starts to become habit and we start to actually welcome, instead of wanting to run away from adversity and being afraid of difficulty and challenges in our life, we actually welcome them. And it's like go into el- any situation without fear because we're not afraid of adversity. We're not afraid of difficulty. We know that it's something not just in our head. We don't just convince ourselves that, oh, yes, this, I'm going I'm to learn from things. You know, what doesn't knock me down or kill me will only make me stronger, you know, <laughs> all these cliches. It's not just this. We're not, it's not a philosophy. We actually know it. So we go into a situation without fear because we know that there's it can do nothing but help us to be of greater service to others, which is really what this life is all about. We all know that, that when we die, we're not going to be judged on how well we hit quarterly numbers or were we vice president of operations or were we CEO and chairman or blah, blah, blah. That's not going to be on our eternal resume. What's going to matter is how well did you love the people around you? How well, What did you do to try to help the people around you?
0: Well, I think you opened it up, up for me to ask you my next question. Matt, I want you to consider y- yourself and all of your work that you're doing now. And when it's all over with, what does Matt hope to be known for?
1: My life goal at the moment, which has been my life goal for the last 10 years, so I don't anticipate it changing, is to create the conditions for a permanent end to poverty and violence in our world. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to happen while I'm alive, but what I can envision Now, I know this probably sounds a little bit grandiose, but that's what I would like to do. And I I don't really care if I'm known for it or not. I would be perfectly fine if, if nobody remembers me at all. But if I can be part of the spark of a shift in our worldwide culture to where success is viewed, not in terms of what we accumulate and how much we entertain ourselves, but what did we do to make the lives of the people around us better, then I think A permanent end to poverty and violence is the natural result. A world of much greater peace with much less suffering is a result. And that's what I would like to have happen. I would like to at least create the conditions for that. And I think those conditions are created. This is why I focus in the business world, because everybody looks to the business world for how we do things right? I mean, that's how we kind of, if you want to be successful, you want to do what the most successful businesses do or the most successful business leaders do. So what I envision is creating this worldwide change in culture of how we view leadership, focusing more on the personal side of it and what are we doing to serve and care for the people around us. Because if that becomes the norm in the business world, then it will become the norm in society. That would create the conditions for a permanent end to poverty and violence.
0: Well said. Hey, who's doing something right now you think is interesting?
1: I think you're doing something interesting.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I think you've taken the time to interview people that may something that can benefit people who are listening to your podcast. I think that's great. Instead of thinking that you have to have all the answers, find, realizing that there's lots of people with lots of different ideas and finding out what they can do to, to help the people
0: that you're trying to serve. Yeah, that's really, really, really my whole premise. I'm really trying to invest in others or invest in those who want to invest in themselves. That's the end goal. All right, so as we wrap up here, I thought, Matt, maybe you could tell us a good book besides your own that we should read, and then tell us a little bit about where we can find you.
1: Sure. I mentioned Search Inside Yourself earlier. That's one of my top ten all-time favorite books across all categories. Extremely well-written, it's funny, it's logical, and extremely, extremely useful. Another one that I think if this idea of looking at how you can be better service to others, making helping others, being more effective at helping others. Excellent, excellent book that I just read a couple of months ago. It's called Give and Take by Adam Grant. And he Adam Grant is the youngest tenured professor ever at the Wharton School of Business. And he achieved tenure so early because he did just a tremendous amount of unbelievable research. And all of it was on why he calls givers finish at the top of the success ladder by almost every metric what type of givers finish at the top because there are people who just give all the time but they don't have any personal discipline and they don't set boundaries and they do not finish at the top so you know we we do have to be assertive and set boundaries and demand excellence of ourselves and others but the givers who finish at the top he looks at how they do that and what you can do to be more effective at it and what you can do to uh, not have the life sucked out of you by people who are selfish takers that he found in his research too, and as well as what you can do to transform people who are selfish on your team or in your organization. So it's, it's an excellent, excellent book. I would compare it to for any of you out there who are Malcolm Gladwell fans. It's written very much in the style of Malcolm Gladwell, where there's really intriguing stories and case studies that draw you in, and then fascinating research by leading institutions that kind of prove the point pretty solidly. Good. Where uh,
0: can we find you?
1: MattTenney.com. There's three T's in the middle. So it's M-A-T-T-T-E-N-N-E-Y.com. And likewise, if you prefer to just connect on social media, you can find me on Twitter at, at MattTenney1. And that's, those are probably the two easiest places to find me. I also blog for the Huffington Post. So if you, you know, Matt Tenney and Google and put in Huffington Post, you'll see a bunch of articles that come up in the Huffington Post there.
0: Well, Matt, I certainly appreciate your time, and I'm totally looking forward to following you and seeing what you do in the future to invest in others. Just in listening to you talk, and I'm sure everybody else will validate this, you are certainly a passionate guy. Thank you, I. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Be sure to look us up online at leadersofinterest.com. Become a mentor of mentors by rating us in iTunes and Stitcher. Your five-star rating helps us invest in leaders just like you. See you next time.